Good morning and Happy New Year. My name is Chung, and I am honored and humbled to have the privilege to bring you God's word today. Thank you, Esther, for reading today's uh, sermon passage from Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. Let us begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you today humbly and in all of who you are. We thank you for bringing us through 2023, and we look forward to you working in our lives in this new year. As we begin 2024, we pray that you will be the center of our lives throughout the year as we live a life in total dependence on your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that your Holy Spirit would open and convict our hearts to hear your word preached today. I pray that you will be with me as your humble vessel as I bring your word to your people today. May you be glorified through this sermon. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. A few years ago, a friend of mine and his wife adopted a young boy from China. And this young boy had medical issues. My friend was telling me that how this young boy was abandoned by his biological parents at a very young age and was sent to the orphanage. He was cared for by the orphanage physically, but really did not receive much love from the orphanage. However, after my friend and his wife adopted the son, this boy, they brought him back to the U.S., and he immediately started to learn what it means to be part of a loving family. All of a sudden, he now has a set of loving parents and siblings. His medical conditions were taken care of by the doctors and paid for by his parents. He was protected from harm by his parents and just as his other siblings. In this real-life situation, we see how this young boy suddenly experienced some newfound privileges at the point of adoption. So what is adoption? According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, adoption is defined as to take a child voluntarily as one's own child, especially in compliance with formal legal procedures. As we think about adoption, our sonship to God is not a natural sonship, but an adoptive sonship. Every man and woman in the world is not automatically born as sons of God. Instead, at some point in our lives, as Christians, we experience our adoption as sons of God. J.I. Packer describes our spiritual adoption this way. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of this relationship. The theme of today's passage is this. 
Adoption in Christ is the work of God that makes our hopeful life possible. Let me repeat that. Adoption in Christ is the act of God that makes our hopeful life possible. There are three main points that we can learn from today's passage from, about adoption from Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. First point, it's the prerequisite of adoption. Or in other words, what do I have to do to be adopted? Point number two, the privileges of adoption. Or in other words, what do I get from adoption? And point number three, the persuasion of adoption. Or in other words, how can I be assured I am adopted? All right, before we explore what the Bible tells us about what we have to do to be adopted, let's take a look at how our passage today fits within the overall scheme of the book of Romans. One of the most important things about reading the Bible is to understand the context of the passage. In my humble opinion, the book of Romans is the fullest exposition of the gospel message. The book of Romans can be broken down into three major sections. The first section, which encompasses about the first three chapters of the book of Romans, talks about our sinful nature, how sinful we are, how no one is righteous, how no one chooses God. Section two starts at the end of chapter three, goes on for about eight more chapters, all the way to chapter 11, talks about our justification by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone. And the section three goes from, starts about chapter 12 all the way to the end of the book, talks about our necessary response to this grace, this gospel. Now, within section two of the book of Romans, about the justification in Christ alone, the climax of this section is in chapter eight. And today's sermon is, on, is from chapter eight, verses 14 and 17, where we will take a look at what it means to be called sons of God as part of the overall justification that we have in Christ. So first, let's explore what Apostle Paul describes about the prerequisite of our adoption or what it takes for us to be adopted. And we can take a look at that from Romans chapter 8, verse 14. So let's read verse 14 again. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. According to this verse, the prerequisite and distinguishing sign of being a son of God is that a person is led by the Spirit of God. What does it mean or look like for a person to be led by the Spirit of God? To be led by the Spirit of God is to have the direction of one's life as a whole determined by the Holy Spirit. That means our minds, our hearts, our actions, our thoughts are all determined and influenced by the Spirit of God. He adopted us as sons of God by placing the Holy Spirit in our lives. Let's take note of who actually initiate 
placing this Holy Spirit in our lives. Let's turn to it in, in, in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. We read this. All right, this is God speaking. And I will put, I will give my, uh, wait. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This passage clearly identifies God as the initiator in putting his spirit within us. The result of this spirit-dominated existence is being that we become sons of God as he has called us his own. Let's take a look at another passage that talks about our adoption. And this is a passage that the praise team had read today in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Paul also describes about our adoption when he writes, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. First, in this Ephesians passage, we see Paul describing when God predestined us for adoption as sons. Paul says, God chose us before the foundation of the world. Think about that. Before God created the world, the universe, and everything that's in them, he had already chosen us to be his beloved sons. Even before we were born or had done anything to deserve him choosing us. Adoption was his plan all along and not an afterthought. It was not due to our distinctives or worth. His choice of us is unconditional and solely based on his will. Our adoption is therefore secure as it's based on God's eternal purpose and grace. He will not change his mind and unadopt us. John Piper summarized it well in this way. Before the creation of the world and before we existed, God looked on us in our need and he looked upon his son crucified and risen as the all-sufficient atonement for our sin. And because of that, he chose us to be holy and blameless. And to that end, he predestined us for adoption. It happened before the creation of the world. Second, if we go back to the Ephesians passage, Paul also describes the means through which God secured our adoption. Paul says that our adoption is through Christ and according to the purpose of his will. Our adoption is not based on our own merits, our abilities, our good works, or even our character. No matter how good we are or how generous we are, that does not qualify us for our adoption. Instead, our adoption is based solely on God's will and through Christ's finished work on the cross alone. 
the criterion of our adoption is based solely on Christ's perfect life on earth and perfect sacrifice on the cross for our sins. On the cross, we see what some theologians call the great exchange in that our past, present, and future sins are all imputed to Christ and his perfect righteousness is imputed to us. Therefore, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake, he, that is God the Father, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So now that we have learned that our adoption is based on God's initiative and based solely on his will through Christ alone, how then do we apply this doctrine in our lives today? What does our adoption in Christ have to do with Christian living? For those of you who are married, have you ever had a major disagreement with your spouse? Now, this principle will also apply to anyone who has a major disagreement with a family member. What's going on through your mind when you're having a major disagreement with your spouse? You're probably thinking, well, I'm right, and he or she is wrong, and you're trying to convince them of your opinion. What if both of you just can't resolve the difference of opinion? Do you just give in and just go around the house moping and pouting about it and giving them the silent treatment? Or do you start berating your spouse about how insensitive they are? Or is your attitude similar to the actress Jada Pinkett Smith, who recently said in an interview that she is exhausted with trying to reconcile with her husband, Will Smith? As we learn today, the Bible teaches us that we start with remembering that our identity is an adopted son of the Almighty God. And therefore, our identity is in Christ. Our identity is not in ourselves, nor is it in our spouses, spouse or our children. We remember the steadfast love of the Father to us as his sons. And we remember there is nothing we did to deserve this. We remember the steadfast love that the God has for us as his sons. We are forever loved by God the Father. And there's nothing that will separate us from this love that he has given us. So with this new identity in mind, ask yourself this question when you're faced with a, your, a disagreement with your spouse the next time. Do I have to be right or have it my way regarding this disagreement with my spouse? Whether I go with my opinion or my spouse's opinion, I am still a son of God, fully loved by the Father. As a result, we can follow God's teaching in putting each other first before ourselves. Husbands, you can be grateful and obedient to God in listening to his word by loving your wife sacrificially as Christ loved the church, by putting her needs first before yours. Wives, 
you can be obedient and grateful to God in listening to his word by submitting to your husband, by putting his needs first before yours. Some time ago, my wife, Diana, and I were in such a situation where we just couldn't agree on an issue. It wasn't a sin issue. In other words, either opinion is not sinful. It just turned out to be a difference of opinion about raising children, about spending money. Well, actually, it turns out to be a passionate difference of opinion on both sides. After days of discussion and prayer, we still couldn't resolve it. At the end, the Holy Spirit reminded me of my new status in Christ as the Son of God. With the Spirit's help, I was able to tell Diana that because of Christ's love for me and because my identity is in him, I'm going to be obedient to him and love Diana sacrificially by going with her opinion as my own, not blaming her if that decision turns out to be a wrong one, but instead be accountable to that decision. So in summary, as we explore the prerequisite of adoption, we come back to the question of what I have to do to be adopted. And the simple answer is nothing. Our redemption is through Jesus' blood, and it is through his redemption alone that we are adopted. So having considered that the prerequisite of our adoption is entirely God's initiative and that he loves us and adopted us as his son through Christ's perfect redemption on the cross, we can now focus on the incredible privileges we have as those who are adopted. So for our second point, we will now consider the benefits and privileges of adoption. Coming back to this passage in Romans chapter 8, Paul describes some of the privileges we now experience and the culmination and full benefits of our adoption that awaits us in the future. So in verse 15, Paul writes this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul describes the first benefit we receive as a son of God, and that is our freedom from fear. Before we knew Christ, we all had fear, and we're all controlled by fear. Fear is what drove us and controlled us. What kind of fear is described here in this passage? Is Paul talking about some generic fear or something more specific? Within the context of this passage, Paul is describing the anxiety and fear of judgment which we suffered in our pre-Christian state. Paul says that we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Prior to knowing Christ, we lived as slaves to sin, and our future was doomed as we faced the final judgment, and that led us to fear. Once we know Christ 
and have the Holy Spirit living in us, the opposite happens. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are now adopted sons of God, and we are no longer controlled by this fear of judgment. However, there are times we still operate out of this fear, even though we, re- we are adopted, because we do not fully understand our adoption. We need to remember and remind ourselves that our adoption is a transition out of the destitution and bondage to sin to sorry lost my lost my thought <clears throat> to uh, our future was doomed and so We remind ourselves that our adoption is a transition out of the destitution and bondage to sin into safety, stability, love, and enjoyment as part of the family of God. From John chapter 5, verse 20, we learn from Christ that love is what he obtained from the Father. This love extends to all of God's adopted sons. As his sons, God will never forsake or reject us. The Spirit's work in conferring sonship to us is one of the most beautiful pictures of the believer's joy and security. So in summary, as we contrast the spirit of slavery and the spirit of adoption, we see that we did not receive the spirit of slavery, which is the human spirit enslaved to sin, but we have now received the spirit of adoption who is the Holy Spirit. The spirit of slavery brings us to fear and anxiety of judgment, while the spirit of adoption brings us to peace, security, and comforting conviction. The next benefit we receive as adopted sons of God is a personal relationship with God through prayer. In verse 15, Paul writes that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What does Abba mean? This is an Aramaic word which signifies a family name that is familial. By calling God Abba, Father, it shows that the believer is conscious of belonging to God as his son and highlighting the intimacy with God that the believer has gained. It also shows that the believer has a status comparable to that of Jesus himself, since Jesus used the same word to address God. In almost every passage in the Bible where Jesus refers to God, he addresses God as his father or Abba. For example, in the Lord's Prayer, we learn that Jesus taught us to refer to God as our Father in heaven. In the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus prays to God and also addresses God as his Father. As a side note, there is one instance in the Bible in which Jesus did not address God as his Father. And that is on the cross when Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
from all eternity past to all eternity future. Jesus has a personal and familial relationship with God as his father, except on the cross. When he lost a relationship with God, who had forsaken Jesus on the cross because of our sins. Such love Jesus has shown us on the cross in that his eternal relationship with God the Father was willingly severed because of his love for us in taking our sins on the cross. So coming back to our description of Abba Father, a believer's relationship with God as his son is similar, though not exactly alike, to Jesus' relationship with God as his son. This cry of Abba Father expresses the attitude of respectful boldness and unlimited trust in God. It also shows a degree of intimacy with no shred of guilt. With this newfound relationship we now have with God, the Father, we can come boldly to him in prayer. We can pray like Jesus and have the, and have the same relationship that Jesus has with God, the Father. Prayer is a privilege and benefit that we get as adopted sons of God. So how does this affect our lives? How much do you pray? Do you pray for every small thing and every big thing in your lives? Do you pray audaciously about everything to God, knowing that you have access and fellowship with him? Is prayer your first resort or your last resort? Do you pray for the fulfillment of his promises, knowing that he uses our prayers to bring his promises to pass? The next benefit we receive as adopted sons of God is inheritance as heirs. If we turn to verse 17, Paul writes, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul describes us as heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. According to the dictionary, an heir is a person who is legally entitled to collect an inheritance. So likewise, Paul is saying that as heirs of God, we will receive an inheritance from God. When Paul uses the word heir in this passage, this word is used in a way that is very uniquely Pauline. In America, we think of heirs as people whose inheritance are primarily estates and debts. However, in Paul's original context, it is much more than inheriting estates. In the historical Roman context, if a man doesn't have a son, or if he has a bad son, he can actually adopt a son to secure his family lineage. Through adoption, the adopter would not only pass on his assets, but he would also preserve his reputation, his family name, his identity, family history, and family responsibilities. 
the adoptee's old debts were canceled, and the adoptee would start a new life in his new, as part of the new family. Therefore, as an adopted son of God and as co-heirs with Christ, this means that we inherit everything that God has given us and promised to us. In a similar sense, we adopt Jesus' reputation, his lineage, his identity, and his family name. All of these are now ours. All our debts are paid for. We are given a new family identity, and we inherit everything God has promised and given us. We did not and could not contribute anything, but instead, we inherit everything through Christ. One key inheritance, as mentioned in verse 17, that we will receive is that we will receive his glory. What a marvelous inheritance. However, not only will we receive and inherit his glory, we will also share in his suffering. Suffering is a prerequisite to glory. Participation in Christ's glory can only come through participation in his suffering. We can only attain this inheritance through suffering similar to Christ. What are these sufferings? These sufferings refer to the daily anxieties, tensions, and persecutions that come with following Christ. When we suffer, will we wallow in our suffering or will we suffer clinging on to Christ alone? Don't let suffering tie us down. Instead, remember our inheritance in Christ. We inherit God's blessing only through and in Christ. Now that we have explored the privileges of adoption in that we no longer need to live in fear, we have access to God through prayer, and we have received an inheritance as heirs, we can now look at the assurance and conviction of our adoption. So for our third point, we will now consider the persuasion of adoption. Or in other words, how I can be assured that I'm adopted. We see Paul describes this persuasion in verse 16. Verse 16 reads, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Let's explore first who convinces us. The Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit and convinces us of our adoption. The Holy Spirit is the agent God uses through whom the believer's sonship is bestowed and confirmed. Next, let's look at what the Spirit does in convincing us. The Holy Spirit not only bestows adoption to us, but he also makes us aware of this new relationship. He makes us conscious and convinces us of our adoption that we are children of God by the free grace of Christ, through Christ alone. His role is to eliminate Christ in our hearts. Next, let's explore how we are convinced of our new relationship. The Holy Spirit makes our human spirit aware that we are God's children. Our adoption as sons affects 
the deepest and innermost part of our beings. And as we have seen in the previous verse, it is the same Holy Spirit who enabled us to cry out and pray to God, addressing him as our Abba, Father. Lastly, let's look at why the Spirit convinces us. The Holy Spirit leads us so that we will look more and more like Jesus by leading us into a spiritual war with sin so that we will share God's perspective and resemble more of his character. It is not a spiritual war that we can fight on our own and with our own strength. Rather, it is a spiritual war in which we must rely and lean totally on the Holy Spirit for his strength and help. He doesn't want us to fall back into fear, but instead to live out our sonship so that we can experience the fullness of Christian life. So how do we apply this truth about the Holy Spirit in our lives convincing us of our adoption? When you find yourself tempted to sin, for example, you find yourself in a position where, you are, uh, where you're about to gossip about somebody else, or you find yourself in a situation where you're tempted to log on to the internet and to view something privately by yourself. Or children, what if you, don't, you just don't feel like obeying your parents? What should you do? A common thing to do for us would be to try to fight this temptation yourself. For example, with New Year's resolution. How many of you have made New Year's resolution before? We all have, right? So January comes around and you make a resolution with yourself that you're going to exercise more, you're going to eat healthy, you're going to read the Bible daily. By February and March, you find your ability to keep the resolution waning. By mid-year, you've pretty much abandoned the resolution. Fighting sin temptation is similar in that sense if we try to fight it with our own strength. After a few months of fighting the sin, you start losing the desire to fight it. Instead, we are to remind ourselves and remember that the Holy Spirit has convinced us that our identity is now in Christ and we have a new value system. So whatever you do, right or wrong, the Holy Spirit convinces you that you are still his child. There is nothing you can do to reverse this. God promises that he will not change his mind and he will not reverse his decision to save his children. Therefore, you can now live this life and fight this temptation in light of your sonship. So next time when you're faced with the temptation to sin, ask yourself these questions. Is this sin the blessing the Holy Spirit offers me as God's child? Is this sin the fullness of life that Jesus came to give me? No. Living in sin is not, but living a righteous life in light of my sonship is what God offers to me. 
and he has given me the Holy Spirit to help me live a righteous life. I am now his and not part of this world. In the fairy tale, The Ugly Duckling, a baby swan grew up with a family of ducks. He was different from the rest of the ducks and was teased and ridiculed. Eventually, when he grew up, he then realized he had always been a swan and now he can live a graceful life as a swan. The Holy Spirit reminds us that we are no longer ugly ducklings, but our identity is now in Christ. And it's through Christ alone, with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us, that we can have the strength daily to fight the sin temptation. So in conclusion, Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17 teaches us the prerequisite, the, privil the privileges, and the persuasion of adoption. Our adoption is not based on anything about us, but our adoption is entirely God's initiative for his purpose and by his grace alone. Ultimately, adoption shows us the greatness of God's love in that he loved us, he chose us before the foundation of the world, he redeemed us through Christ, he forgave us, he took us in as his sons and gave himself to us as our Father. And even at present and in the future, he continues to shower us with an eternity of his steadfast love, resulting in increasing our love for him. We also explored the privileges we received from our adoption, which include our inheritance from God as heirs of God and also a great reminder that we no longer need to live in fear because of our assurance of faith. These are so much better than what the world has to offer. Finally, we also learned that the persuasion of our adoption is by the Holy Spirit who bears witness that we are children of God, whatever the circumstances we are in. In our sinful nature, in the face of our failures, he does not reject us. Instead, the Spirit bears faithful witness with our spirit that we are his children. So in conclusion, we come back to the theme of this passage. Adoption in Christ is the act of God that makes our hopeful life possible. Our entire Christian life must be lived and understood understood in terms of this, of our adoption in Christ. With our adoption as God's sons, it comes with a change in identity as our identity is now in Christ. This must therefore impact our thoughts, actions, and our whole life. With our new identity in Christ as adopted sons of God, we can now live a faithful life to God in response to his unending steadfast love. Let us pray. Father, we are eternally grateful to you for adopting us as your children by your grace alone through Christ's perfect finished work on the cross. We pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to convict our hearts to remember our new identity in Christ 
and to live this life in total dependence on Christ alone. We pray all this in Christ's name.